Welcome to Michael Easley in Context. This is Michael Easley. And today on the broadcast, we have a friend, uh, a person I admire, a person I wish I had half the acumen of the English language, articulation, recall. She puts me to shame. Janet Parshall has been broadcasting from the nation's capital for over 20 years. She has a passion to equip the saints through intelligent conversation. I don't know who wrote this copy, Janet, but they did a good job <laughs> based on <laughs> biblical truth. When she's not behind a microphone and taking care of her lambs, uh, Janet <laughs> speaks across the country on issues impacting believers. She has authored several books, including the latest, Buyer Beware, Finding Truth in the Marketplace of Ideas. Her husband and also my friend, Craig Parshall, live outside of the nation's capital. I have four children, six grandchildren. How many goats, sheep, lambs, foxes, and cows, and whatnot? Just a whole Noah's Ark out here. Let me tell you, it's amazing. Living Bible lessons, by the way. I've got sheep, so I've got all those scriptural references. We live next to a vineyard, so I'm talking about the vine and the branches on a regular basis. And I've got donkeys, so I can think about the Passover story on a regular basis. But here's my takeaway. It is not a compliment to be called a sheep. Not a good thing at all. I remember talking no, to No, it's a, not, is it? It's yeah, terrible. That is white little lambies, yeah. Well, no, but I'll tell you what, I talked to a shepherd in Scotland once, and he said, oh, they don't have a single brain cell among them. So they're not very smart. They have no defenses. They follow to their own death, and they are born literally willing to die. So I've learned a lot. <laughs> it's not a compliment. <laughs> I won't mention the name of the church. We were in Dallas going to seminary, some friends of mine. There was a big church to a building campaign, and it had a little staff called Shepherd My Flock. And the pastor had a shepherd that had a, a little diamond in it, you know, and, and you wore that for the campaign. And we went off on this before Babylon B and Wittenberg Door kind of days. And we said, okay, the next one's going to be Shear My Sheep, the little sheep. <laughs> And some gold shears. The next one's going to be, the final one's going to be bleed my sheep with a little knife, you know. We had a whole campaign figured out. All right, let's get serious here. But this is serious stuff. So, okay, we're doing a series called Biblical Manhood in a Man-Hating Culture. And that might be a little bit of an overstatement. But this is a huge issue. And I so appreciate you coming on, not only as a person that knows these issues, but from your perspective as a very strong, very accomplished woman, you've had to navigate this in a unique way. But let me give a little bit of a premise and observation, and we'll go back and forth, obviously. And then I got about 10 questions for you. So when we think about egalitarian versus complementarian, which for, again, for our listeners, egalitarian simply is equal value, equal role, complementarian, equal value, distinct role. A bit of an oversimplification, but it gets us started. You and I remember Paul Jewett's book, Man is Male and Female, and that came out in the mid-70s and blew up the seminary world. Uh, he pushed later for the ordination of women. And then we have these interesting names, uh, Scanzoni and Hardesty, mm -hmm. their books all were meant to be, was about biblical feminism, and they've gone completely, I mean, pro-LGBTQ, all that kind of stuff. Along the way, the Danvers Statement, which was done in Danvers, Connecticut, there go the name, and had a list of people that you and I know, and some are with the Lord. Of course, Wayne Grudem and John Piper were kind of the front piece, Mary Cassians, S. Lewis Johnson with the Lord, Gleason Archer, Kent Hughes, John Frame, on and on. People we'd look to and say they're solid. They're solid biblically. Our friends John MacArthur and others signed this document. 
Fast forward, we have a guy named Gilbert Belzikian, or Balzikian, an interesting individual who wrote the book Beyond Sex Roles, Eternity Book of the Year. I didn't know that until doing homework in 1985. And he became sort of the theological voice behind what Willow Creek was in that day, egalitarian, women elders, women pastor teachers from time to time. Okay, that's the big overview. Weigh in on what I just kind of dumped out there. Where am I off? Where am I on? What would you add to it? Well, first of all, I appreciate so much you underscored that this really is a huge issue because it's symptomatic, I think, of a much larger question. And that really is the primacy, the authority, the historicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so if we decide to pick and choose culturally because there are outside forces that come to bear on the church to be more in tune with what the culture is doing, then that really puts before us the question of whether or not we believe that the word of God is inerrant, transcendent, inspired, applicable today as it was 2,000 years ago, and would should the Lord Terry be applicable 2,000 years from now. But I think this is emblematic of the fact that there is a cultural pressure being brought to bear on this idea. So we use these words, and by the way, you talk about these people who have written these materials. I'm passionate about this subject, Mike, because the Lord brought me to Washington as a Midwest transplant because I got involved with one of the signatures of the Danvers Statement, Dr. Beverly LaHaye. Started working with her. She, under the guidance and tutelage of her husband, Dr. Tim LaHaye, founded something called Concerned Women for America. And that was done because we see the law of physics in D.C. all the time. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. And so a group wanted to be formed that would really be the winsome, warm, biblical response to the national organization of some women, as Dr. Jerry Falwell used to call them. And so we wanted to say, wait a minute, we love our husbands, we love our homes, we don't feel that we're second-class citizens. And that was the cultural manifestation for all of this. But we were approaching this from a biblical perspective, believing that God never made us as second-class citizens. He made us, the word you used earlier in defining complementarianism, he made us with a distinctive role. Now, why am I passionate about this? Because, again, I'm just a kid from the Midwest finding myself on national stages debating the feminist leaders of our time. You named them, I debated them. Patricia Allen, Eleanor Schmiel, Betty Friedan, Gloria Steinem. I've debated all of these people, so I had a front and center perspective on what feminism in the culture look like. And so you started out by talking about a man-hating culture. I would amend that by saying it's not a man-hating culture or even a man-hating cultural response. I think it's a man-wounded response. I think it's a self-doubting mm -hmm. response. I think it's a broken relationships response. I think it's a generational pain response. I think it's a bunch of bad role models by other men response. So when I saw these women... Mm. Oh, boy, and I have to tell you, God took me to the woodshed. I'm very, very grateful because I came in there, stereotypical for Washington. Every time that tally light of the camera went on and we were supposed to debate, I had my white paper, I had my facts, and boy, I was just going to decimate them right on these national stages. And God broke my heart. And I love it when he does it. It's painful, but oh, is it profoundly impacting. And I remember we were in New York. <laughs> there were five feminists and me. Five against one. You know, it's always fair, right, wow. when you enter those kind of debates. And the two female yeah. hosts of the national program were also feminists. So they walked up to the five feminists before the show started and said, we absolutely they love needed your work. Five. They needed five to deal with you. No, no, they needed five to deal with you, Janet. <laughs> Well, it was— They were outgunned. I, you know, I'm sorry. But the internal conversation I'm having with the Lord is like, not fair, not fair. I sure. went out of here. I didn't ask to sign up for the lion's den. 
Well, the wonderful thing about this is in the back and forth of all of this, there were a couple of things that happened. Number one, I watched these women, and I'm telling you, that sweet, sweet voice of the Lord sometimes comes in in the most unexpected places and ways. And the Lord absolutely made me stop in the middle of this debate and say, look at them. They're broken. They're hurting. One of them had Mm -hmm. had multiple abortions. One of them had a husband divorced and now had a same-sex relationship. And I began to realize that their feminism, their mandate for equality and power came out of a place of brokenness. And I suddenly realized, wait a minute, God loves them just as much as he loves me. Janet, love them. That's what's missing in their life. This declaration and this clarion call for power is because they just haven't been loved unconditionally by a God who knows them and loves them dearly. Well, long story short in that, just to put a capstone on the debate, while I thought I was being outgunned and outnumbered, when it was all said and done, half the audience came up and asked to shake my hand, not the national feminist hands. Turned out they were kids on a field trip from a Christian school who'd been invited to be the audience. (laughs) (laughs) So I was playing to the home team without even knowing it. And to your point on the broader scale, who knows how God used that in some of those young folks in the audience. Yes. Um, You and I have both been in debates where, you know, the person, one, has been decimated. One of my favorite memories was Norm Geisler debating a guy at SMU, and the guy did not know what he got into when Mm -hmm. he was debating Norm. Mm -hmm. And Norm just eviscerated. It, It was Perkins Seminary packed to the gills and mostly... Perkins students, a handful of DTS students, they applauded at Geisler's comments. They cheered at Geisler. Geisler won the thing hands down by any measure. When it was over, Janet, Norm walks over to this professor, whom I will not name, held his forearm in hand, and I, I heard later from Dr. Frederick Howe, he told him, this isn't personal. We're talking about facts. Yeah. I care about you as an individual. Mm-hmm. I love you as an individual. I'd be glad to talk anytime you want. Yes. Wow. wow. Not not unlike your experience. These are people that God made in his image who yeah. have some, you know, very challenging experiences. Yeah. Well, let's jump into my questions. And I appreciate already your clarification and helping me see some things better. So first of all, I think you've already answered it. Is it over the top to say culture is man-hating? I'm not sure. I, if hate is the outward manifestation, I'm much more interested in the genesis of where that comes from. If it's hate, I do really believe, okay. to the marrow of my bones, Michael, that this comes from a place of wounding. And I use that experientially, my observations, and okay. seeing these women, that that anger on the outside, yes, on, it masquerades on the stage of life as a clarion demand for equality in power. You know, they would shout, equal pay for equal work. Any person with a brain between their ears says, if two people are equally qualified for the same job, they should both get the same pay. By the way, historical fact, that legislation was passed by a male-dominated Congress. But there are distinctions. And so I think the hating comes from the demand for equality in all things and belying the biological reality, the theological truth, that there are distinctive between men and women. So let me give you a classic quick example. When I was in New York doing the Today Show, and I was with Katie Couric, and she wanted to challenge me because at the time there was a robust debate about whether or not women should be firefighters. 
And so I said, well, if I'm on the second floor of a building and I need to be carried down a ladder, I'm not sure I want a 110-pound woman to do it. Now, that isn't being discriminatory against a woman. It's recognizing the biological reality that I want a bigger bone mass and stronger muscles to carry me down the ladder. Well, she got all flustered and she took an eight-minute segment, cut it to a three-minute segment, and that was the end of the discussion. So these are sacred cows in some respect because it's this blind adherence to the idea that is a mandatory equality in all things. And what we do because we're not critical thinkers is we make this a linear proposition. It's an either or when it's in many cases a both. Yes, we're equal, but with distinctives. And those distinctives then predetermine some places where we will serve in the culture writ large and particularly in the church in specific. So we've seen men, and we have to acknowledge this, Stephen Mansfield and I talked about this on his interview, that men have abused their roles. Mm-hmm. We won't name names, but the Southern Baptists went through some terrible issues in, in very recent history. I'm sure large churches across the country, there's been a overbearing CEO, he's the pastor or a leader. Yeah. And so there needs to be an acknowledgement that men violated a trust. And there's probably not as much accountability in that area as should be. Your thoughts on some of this historically, and it certainly feeds to this tension. hundred percent. And like you, Michael, I'm loath to do finger pointing. What I'd rather do is if I recognize a disease, I want to study the symptomatology and look for the cure. And so if I look at some of the causal factors of this, I think that there has been abuse. If you look at the relationship in the church now, specifically men and women, we know this happens in the culture, but let me hone this down to the dynamic with in the church between Christian men and women. There has been abuse. And then sometimes that abuse, when brought to those in authority in the church, has been wantonly ignored. I interviewed a woman who literally was physically assaulted by her husband, broken nose, blackened eye, bloodied face, went to the pastor's house. He's opened the screen door and shut it immediately and said, I'm so sorry, I'll pray for you. Now, not only was that a criminal assault and the police should have been called immediately, but this is a shepherd who had a wounded sheep and should have been addressing it. But it was such a political hot potato, a cultural piece of dynamite, that he didn't want to touch it. And so what happens is when you get husbands in particular— or pastors specifically, who practice what I like to call bad Bible. I love the fact that your broadcast is called In Context. When we fail to read the Bible contextually, we come up with the most twisted, pretzelized forms of doctrine under the world. So we don't practice what is good, solid Bible, and bad Bible can equal bullies. So if you don't understand what the scripture says, if you really think that submitting, having your wife submit to you means you only wear a denim jumper, you never cut your hair, and you walk five steps behind your man, you are reading a comic book. You are not reading the Word of God. Let me put something else out. I also think that we've got a horrible case of what I call pulpit timidity. When will men of God who are to hold out the whole counsel of God preach without blush, hesitation, or embarrassment, thus saith the Lord? So recognize the distinctives in God's economy and God's world, but also recognize the fact that there is abuse, that there is pain, that it should be taken care of. What do you do with the scripture that says flee an angry man when you're married to a borderline personality disorder who abuses you on a regular basis? Can't walk into the pastor's studies with black and blue, and yet you're wounded nonetheless. So 
I will be gracious here and say maybe some of the pulpit timidity can be eradicated by spending other time with other brothers where you can say, how do you handle this in your church? How can we be more transparent? What are a series of resources that we can send people to that we know that are Christ-centered, Christ-honoring, and will wrap them with the affirmation of the Word of God when they come to our pastor study and they're wounded? And last but not least, there's an awful lot of manipulation out there. You know, this. if I were to give a title to our conversation, I would call it this, Rebellion, full colon, roots and results. And I would say that our propensity <laughs> has to be that we have a propensity toward rebellion, male and women. So let me go back to the garden. You know, there's a new film out called Daughters of Eve. It was filmed in Chicago. It is horrible. It it puts a new spin on the word heresy. It is absolutely unbelievable. It's I am woman, hear me roar and mess up the Bible at the same time. It's awful stuff. But it's going back, and it makes a heroine out of Eve. So, okay, let me just so you linger. Just, you just made a whole bunch of people go watch it now. That's right. <laughs> exactly. You just drove people to watch that now, just so you know, Jenny. <laughs> hey, redeem the time. That's not a good use of your time, let me tell you. There you go. But, okay, keep going. Keep if going. you go to the idea of Eve, you talk about power. Listen, Satan goes to this woman, and she had all the power in the world to say what? No. And she said yes. So don't talk to me about her being manipulated. And by the way, if it hadn't been Eve, it would have been Janet Partial. My propensity is to rebel. My propensity is to <laughs> sin. And she had all the power in the world to say no. So I think sometimes we understand that really and truly this whole idea of the tension between men and women is at its roots a question of rebellion and obedience. And that's why I love this topic, because mm. if we get this right, it opens the floodgates for our whole perspective on the centrality of Christ and the imperative need to know his word and to apply it to the world around us. So we're talking about a cultural manifestation, a symptom of the disease, but the root cause is rebellion and the solution is absolute adherence to the word of God. And you talk about uh, context and biblical accuracy. I still remember, you know, learning Hebrew and so forth and so on. And when it says, I'll make a helper suitable for him. And of course, that is turned into diminutive and demeaning language. Well, she's a help meet. She's a helper. She's, you know, as you said, walking behind him with the denim skirt, whatever. <laughs> but that word, Eretzot, is the same word that Psalmist says, God is our helper. Yes, in time of need. Here I raid my Ebenezer, the stone of helping. So language is important. And the Bible's saying, no, Adam was not, quote, sufficient or complete apart from someone who could help him. I know you and Craig well enough, you know Cindy and me well enough. Cindy is more than a help, like a helper in the sense of the way condescending. She corrects me. She gets in my face. Mm -hmm. She has strong opinions. She's smarter in some sectors. I think we both compliment, which is a good word, right? But just for the you know sidebar here, let's go on. Okay, in 40-plus years of broadcasting, reporting, being on a panel, et cetera, give me Janet Parshall's overview of what you've seen with this egalitarian v. complementarian debate. Yeah. Well, let me talk you, You've about, touched on some of it already, but a little bit, yeah, go yeah, ahead. And you need to delineate this out because the world and the church are, in theory, supposed to be distinctive and different. And so in the world, I have seen this be a continued problem that manifests itself, and we'll talk about this later on. But it isn't just the male-female tension. It's this whole mass confusion of how one identifies. I identify as a man. I was born as a woman. So this is an idea that's just, it's a triple-headed hydra. Culturally, it's even worse than it was before because we didn't answer the questions correctly 30, 40, 50 years ago. But because you use the words egalitarian and complementarian, let me go within the parameters of the walls of the church. 
And I have seen mission creep, and that bothers me tremendously because when you begin to start to acquiesce to cultural norms and what you think are cultural necessities, you by its very nature begin to move away from the transcendent applicability of the word of God. And so I have seen mission creep. And my job, Michael, I bet I review gosh, maybe 100, 150 books a month. And I have seen a sea change, a trend in what is being published by Christian publishers. And I'm not going to name names, but I'm just going to philosophically call this out, where there is an unbelievable mission drift that you're more interested in selling books, even if it's squishy theology, even if it's half truth, half falsy, which makes it all, you know, it's a drop of arsenic. You've poisoned the whole well if it's half untruth. But I've seen this mission drift where there is this desire to be absolutely embraced by the culture And so you're willing to say anything. More importantly, you're willing to sell out. And so if you ask me what I've seen in 40 years, I've seen a sellout in the church where we are more desirous Mm. to be loved by the world than to serve the God we are supposed to love unconditionally and obediently. So I'm very, very worried about that because, again, the root cause of that is not the complementarian egalitarian issue. That's the manifestation of what is a move away from subscribing to the authority and the inerrancy of the word of God. That's a huge issue. Listen, I had a caller call me on the show the other day, and I, and I love it when a caller goes, I stumbled on your show accidentally, and I go, yes, there's always accidents in God's economy. Swim a little closer <laughs> to my microphone. I just love that. Precious kid, and he was sincere. And we were talking about this horrible legislation that just got passed in Canada dealing with, quote-unquote, conversion therapy, which is a cudgel. It's language used by things like the Atlantic magazine, but no ministry worth its salt ever uses something known as conversion therapy. We are converted because of what Christ did for us in the cross, but I don't know anybody who uses nefarious techniques to try to get someone to change their sexuality. But I'm also not going to lie. When Paul makes the declaration that such were some of you, we can be converted in our desires. God can take old things and turn them into new things. And so Canada doesn't like that. And Canada has passed this horrific bit of legislation that would literally criminalize Christianity. If you had someone who struggled with their same-sex attractions and they came to you and they said, I don't like this, I want something different for my life, if you began to share with them what the Word of God says, you can go to prison. So pastors, 4,000 of them have now spoken up, including people like John MacArthur, who are saying, we need to preach from the pulpit. Male and female, he created them both. Now, You asked me in the 40 plus years, this is what you get as the expected outcome. When you don't preach, thus saith the Lord, when you don't draw the distinction that there's a man and a woman equal but distinctive, what you get is a world who is absolutely like a parasite jumping on that saying, now we're going to get you. And they end up passing legislation in Canada, our sophisticated neighbors to the north, that make it illegal to say, and such were some of you. So this is a cautionary tale. If we don't take care of this issue now, Michael, the way this is going, the trajectory is pointing right to the gates of hell. There's no soft landing on this because the more you move away from what the word of God says, the more hellish the outcomes are going to be. And I think that's exactly where we're at. So our conversation is prescient in that this is the current manifestation of this problem. But if we don't rectify this, if we don't turn the ship of state around for the church, we're going to crash on the rocks. So when Obergefell was passed, I remember the hue and cry from the Christian, you know, it's hard to aggregate it, but let's say the Christian voice was, this is going to impinge on religious liberty and religious freedom. And they're going to knock on the door and say, Pastor Michael Easley, we love you. We've been in your church. My lesbian girlfriend, my gay boyfriend, we want you to officiate the service. And you say, I love you guys. I, I so appreciate who you are. You know, I can't do that. You know, 
I'm constrained by scripture, male and female. Now I'm going to be, it's not going to be the baker. It's not going to be the photographer. It's going right. to be the pastor. And I think it was it Justice Breyer who said the test of this will be religious freedom. That's exactly right. That's exactly am, I, right. am I right on that one? Was it Breyer? Yeah. And so fast forward, here we are now, and this is happening. Churches are being sued. And it's almost prophetic, and you, you want to hit your head and say, yeah, I've been preaching this. I've not shied away from any of this, Janet. But it's striking that you made a comment about the church you know, being more and more worldly. I've watched the business model come in. Yeah. Churches have become businesses. Mm -hmm. We don't hire pastors. We hire executive assistants. We hire, you know, visionary leaders, directional leaders. No, hire pastors. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, preach and teach the Bible. What a novel idea. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I'm ranting. I'm not this way like get around you. Okay, number four. <laughs> Let's sketch this out gay, LGBTQAI, whatever the emphasis might subtly or directly be, how has this contributed to role confusion and this kind of anti-male rhetoric? And I think I already know where you're going to go with this because you're correcting me all along, which is great. I like being corrected by you. But you see what I'm asking? The change you, you articulated earlier with feminism, now we've got this manifestation of the LGBTQAI fill in the blank working in, right. this is not going to end well. Mm -mm, mm -mm. And you realize the core of all of this, whatever initial you want to use, it's the idea of who am I? That question, by the way, has been fingerprinted in the heart of every single person. We think in our spiritual journey, we find God. In truth, he's been pursuing us all along. I talk about this all the time because it's such a succinct word picture, but it's Blaise Pascal creating in the heart of every single person a God-shaped void, and only a personal relationship with him can fill it. So if you look at all of these initials, what is the common thread that weaves it through whatever the particular letter of the alphabet is you want to define yourself? It's who am I? Am I a person who needs to be loved by anybody? So I'll take you, even if you happen to be my same sex, if it's I was born a man, but I feel comfortable being a woman. All of this is an identity question. God puts that identity question in the marrow of who we are so that we will find our identity in him. I have been crucified in Christ and I no longer live. Paul at the Areopagus, in him we live and move and have our being. Our identity, our worth, our definition, our meaning, our purpose is found in him. It's not by accident. It is before the cosmos was breathed into existence. God, if he's not willing that any should perish, and that is his declaration, then he puts in us this desire to seek him out and to find him out. So what happens in this sin-sick fallen world where the prince of this earth still struts and growls and prowls, what he does is he gets people to look for that significance and their worth in externals. If I dress like a woman, I'll discover who I am. If I sleep with a man and I happen to be a man, I'll discover who I am. All of these initials are simply manifestations of the search for significance. Robert McGee's book is multiple copies of out there, The Search for Significance. It's a profound book because it reminds us that every one of us is on that search. When we die, we want to know who am I? Why was I put on this earth? What purpose did God call me to? So all of these external manifestations of dress and sexuality are just outward manifestations of an inward struggle to find out who I am. So when the church, the northern light, the beacon, the lighthouse to a sin-sick dark world gets squishy on the subject of men and women, the powerful, important, profound distinctives between men and women, the precious nature of the roles that God has defined to the two of us, 
Well, then what happens is people start finding their way in the dark and they stumble and they fall and they'll listen to Pied Pipers who will lead them down all kinds of nefarious paths to destruction. But when the church becomes that lighthouse, when the church is unapologetic and doesn't want to miss congeniality in the culture, when the church says, I love you enough to tell you the truth, I love you enough to tell you exactly what God said, I love you enough to tell you that God has a better plan for your life. You're not going to win popularity by any stretch of the imagination. And I happen to believe personally, this is just my two cents, that we're getting to the stage where it's the sheep and the goats and it's the wheat and the shaft and that separation is taking place. And you're going to see the men of God who are going to stand at their pulpit and say, no matter what, I count the cost this far and no farther. And then you're going to get others who are going to say, you know, why don't we create Christians for biblical equality? And you take a lot of the world and a little bit of the world and you mix it together as a mulligan stew and you think you've come up with an answer. And in the end, what you have is a vacuous worldview that leads to destruction. Sorry, my two cents. <laughs> well, no, I was about $87 and two cents. Okay, so you're, you've already answering a lot of my questions. I should have said, Janet, tell me what to ask you. Okay, number five, when you think about the reasons Christian leaders shift and reinterpret and even jettison these passages. I mean, it's sort of like the LGBTQ issue. Well, there's six key passages that are taken out of context. No, yeah, they're not yeah. taken out of context. You don't like those six passages. Mm-hmm. But so we say Paul's a misogynist, or I heard a professor from a school we both know say the church was too Pauline one time and about threw up in my mouth. <laughs> but that's how they get around this. They say, well, wait a minute, that's Paul and you know, you can't go so far is, you know, so they redact Paul. And again, I guess I'm asking you a question you've already addressed. The average church, the average guy who's trying to be a good pastor, be a good husband, whatever, why does he get sucked into this to begin with? And why does he start buying the the new, you know, flavor of the month? Okay, I guess we shouldn't talk about those yeah. passages. Yeah. We shouldn't talk about male and female. Yep. Well, there are a couple of things that come to mind. Let me go to the second part of your question first. I don't know. Maybe it's maybe it's because we have an alienation of affections, if I can use a phrase out of the law. Maybe we're more interested in having the world accept us. I mean, it goes back to what I was saying before about the search for significance. Who wants to be marginalized? You and I remember being in this town when the major newspaper, the Washington Post, called us poor, uneducated, and easy to command. Now, in truth, we give them a lot of material to work with sometimes, so I get it. And to their credit, they eventually (laughs) retracted that. But the bottom line is, I think there is this idea that maybe if I can straddle both worlds. I mean, we forget Augustine's idea that it's the city of God and it's the city of man. And we have rules for deportment in the city of man, and we anticipate our eternal salvation and permanent mailing address in the city of God. But I think if you think that you're going to somehow please man and please God, you've missed Sunday School 101. There's going to have to be a distinctive because there's a point where the roads part. And they cannot go in parallel paths. And what we're seeing are people who are squeezing these two roads together, thinking that somehow you can settle the world and the word and you can make sense out of it. So I think it's a love affair. I think you have to decide, what are you interested in? Are you interested Mm. in serving the God who gave his son for us? unconditionally, willingly, had your name on his lips when he breathed his last? Or do you want to make sure that you get picked up by the New York Times? I'll give a quick example on that. 
<laughs> when I've discovered in Washington that the minute you question God, doubt God, or write against God, you're guaranteed a slot on a Sunday morning talk show or some kind of a platform on one of the major networks. CNN comes to mind immediately. Or one of those books that you talked about before on the idea of uh, writing the book about what it means to be a biblical feminist, which, by the way, is what I call an oxymoron. It's like a jumbo shrimp. I don't know how you can be a biblical feminist, but that's another conversation. The minute you do that, you can find yourself being written up with warm, fuzzy words in magazines like The New Yorker. Now, I would say this to my fellow brothers and sisters. If The New Yorker magazine is going to platform you in a positive way, that's a red flag, okay? That's the <laughs> journal for Babylon. If they're going to say, boy, I really applaud what you're writing. Something's wrong with your theology. So we need to go back to the drawing board. So that's that first part. The second part is... To the person, good apologetics really is more about asking questions and it's giving answers. So to the person who says it's too Pauline and you can't even answer that with a straight face, I would say, all right, then where would you draw the line? Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, just for the record, if that's too Pauline for you and you want to take that out, what are you going to take the Torah, the Tanakh out next? I mean, what other parts would you like to take? Or maybe like Thomas Jefferson, you really have questions about the miraculous. So you'll put out a form of the Bible, as Jefferson did. You can buy it at Monticello today, where all references to the miraculous or the messianic nature of Christ have been removed. So in other words, it's either God or you but the two of you don't co-rule. So if you've decided you're the final arbiter of truth, pastor, Christian author, writer, and you've decided this is no longer germane, that would make you someone who sits on Mount Olympus. You have decided in your arrogance and in your authority, this now has legitimacy <laughs> and that does not. And I would ask, what metric are you using for that? The only answer is self. And that's what gets us into trouble. I have said over and over and over in the pulpit, you know, the problem is God made man in his image, and the man's been making God in his image ever since. <laughs> it's a touche. And it's this so whole good. ideology of, I can't love a God who, I can't believe in a God that. Well, you've just made yourself God. Absolutely. When, you know, and, and it's just striking. Wait a minute, I'm talking, I need to interview. Okay, <laughs> have you, Janet Partial? <laughs> personally felt criticism and attack in this area? Now, because it's just you and me talking and nobody's listening, I'll just share some secrets with you. Oh, <laughs> yes. To this day, I will get mail from people that say you're a woman you should not be on the radio. Now, I'm not quite sure. That must be in First Maccabee really? somewhere. Yes, I kid you not. And I understand, yeah. I understand what the siren song is to summon the church because the world is wooing you with this, Janet, there should be an equal place. Janet, you shouldn't have to deal with it. And you're going, yeah, there's warm fuzzies. I'm running toward that. I mean, I had someone, uh, let me not say names, uh, because my mama said discretion is the better part of valor. So I will speak in the philosophical as opposed to specificity. But there was an organization <laughs> uh, that I was called to be the chairman of. And there was actually pushback at one point because they said, well, we've looked at the bylaws in the Constitution and the pronoun is he. So therefore, it really doesn't open the door for a she to be the chairman of the organization. And I thought, oh, OK, well, this is going to be interesting. So here's what I tell my daughters. The problem is real. The response has been wrong. So I actually understand where some of this wounding comes from. When someone says to a woman in the world, you can't be the president of Pepsi because you're a woman, I get that. When someone says you can't fly for United because you're a woman, I understand where that anger comes from. When someone says to somebody in the church, you may never contribute 
the gifts that God has given you to this church. I understand where that comes from. So I don't want to finger point. I want to move beyond that. The time is short. Jesus is coming soon. Let's find the solution on this. And so the problem, as I said before, is real, but I think the solutions have been horrible. It isn't about hashtag me too. Yes, there's real abuse out there, but in that particular area, as an example, and I'm going to be transparent with you, it's the only area of the law where you're guilty until proven innocent, as opposed to innocent until proven guilty. Boom. All you have to do is slap that moniker on somebody, and there are horribly real cases of abuse out there. But now, in the court of public opinion, your gallows are built, you're hung from the neck until dead. Oh, and then we'll get to the court to find out whether or not it really happened. So again, problems are real. The response has been wrong. Here's a wonderful opportunity, Michael, for the church to lead, not abdicate, not acquiesce, not to fall in love with the world, but to really be a beacon of light and hope in a sin-sick fallen world. I remember when the so-called Blue Book first came out, Piper and Grunem edited, and that became such a good text for so many of us. And I remember at the church where uh, we were in Northern Virginia, we actually drafted a Rolls paper over about 18 months. As you know, nothing happens quickly in Washington, <laughs> right. D.C. So we had committees and readers and contributors, and I sent it to Wayne. I said, Wayne, scrub this. What are we missing? Fortunately, we had a, a woman who was a PhD advisor at George Mason, hmm. and she volunteered to uh, work with the language. And she was brilliant. She said, Michael, let me just tell you how this is going to be heard yeah. when it's read. I'll disagree. And she just was able to nuance it a little bit. At the end of the day, it was an extraordinary product. And that said, fast mm. forward, wow. we would talk to these people. To this day, I get complaints because they say, well, you let a woman up uh, lead a song. I said, yeah. Well, she has authority over men. I said, how? Yeah. Explain what authority is in the Bible and what it isn't. And, you know, I keep differentiating, since we're talking about church, the role of pastor-teacher vis-a-vis the office of elder. Thank you, yes. The office of elder is distinctly male. Mm-hmm. Presbyteros episcopos. Mm-hmm. It's pretty hard to find them in or outside the Bible referring to older women. Right. But the gift of pastor-teacher is not gender-limited to men. Uh, Nancy Lee, Damas Wolgamuth, Angram Lotzer, a number of women, yeah. they are phenomenal. My wife is a very good teacher of the Bible. Likewise, women also teach the younger. So I think we have good argument that teaching is a gift, not an office. Mm-hmm. That's hard for most churches to nuance. Yes. And so they get afraid, and so they put women on the elder board. We used to joke in a manual that you well know is all men, elders. And I say, yeah, but you don't know these wives. They are the hand that moves the neck for a lot of these men. So even though you might have elders, I guarantee you their wife gives them their piece of their mind. And uh, those men are very aware how this affects women. The body of Christ can't be what it is. But it, sorry, I, I dealt with this 40 years too, and I'm like, goodness gracious, I'm opening the Bible and teaching the Word of God. You need women to clean up afterwards in their own settings and worldviews. It's not one voice only. That's dangerous. That's dangerous. You know, uh, can we linger here for a minute? Because I think you've really put your finger on the spinal column of this whole conversation. And that is, isn't it interesting how sometimes people who are sloppy in terms of their hermeneutics and their exegesis get profoundly literal 
in some areas. And so this idea of (laughs) she can't get up and share on a Sunday morning because she's in a pastor's role. Wait a minute. I'm going to make my declarative statement. I want to go on the record publicly. I have no problems whatsoever with the pastor being a man. Why? Because Christ is the titular head of the church. God is really big into symbolism. Marriage is all about symbolism. It's to create this word picture of the profound relationship that Christ has for us. He's the bridegroom. I'm the bride. And the profundity in that intimacy of that kind of a relationship. I have no problems with that. But I get asked to speak at churches all the time, Michael, and I will always say I'm here under the authority of the pastor and with the approval of my husband. It's a one-shot deal. I'm not your titular head. I'm not the head of the elder board. I'm not making the decisions that lead the church. It doesn't mean you can never, ever show up. <laughs> when when you said one-shot deal, I go, oh, she'll never do it again. <laughs> She burned the house down. She burned the bridges down. Oh, I'm sorry. Forgive me. You know me well enough by now. Well, but here's the thing. We were at Emanuel, and we have a mutual friend, Barbara, and uh, she deals with MS, and she's one of those people you take your shoes off when you're around Barbara. Mm. I mean, the way she walks with God in excruciating pain and disability yeah, is yeah. otherworldly. Mm-hmm. And so we have her in an adult Sunday school class with Spencer right beside her. And she's telling her story about how she follows Jesus and lives with pain, et cetera. And people complained. Oh, my word. <laughs> I'm like, my lands, where are you? And I go, read through the New Testament yes. and see how many times a woman's voice is recorded in the Gospels. Yeah, exactly. And now come back and give me an argument. Now, you and I understand authority, and we understand this. You mentioned the marriage thing. I appreciate that because I have, again— we all miss the obvious. Bible opens with a wedding. Yes. It ends with a wedding. That's right. Throughout the entire scripture are illustrations of good and bad marriages mm-hmm. and good and bad roles. And Ephesians gives us the declarative as well as Revelation 19. The point was he was illustrating the bride and the bridegroom. And we muck it all up yeah. with making God in our image. Okay, right. I'm back to not interviewing. I'm talking. <laughs> okay. On the other side, have you felt pressure to be, and you're on the record now, to be more <laughs> egalitarian. No, never, never, not once. And I'm going to tell you why. Because there's continuity in what I'm saying. It's because if I choose to do that, what I'm saying is I've decided that the Bible is golden corral. I can walk through this buffet and I'll pick this part and I'll reject this part and I'll take this part and I won't take that part. And it goes back, you know, the centrality of the gospel is Jesus Christ. The message of the word is Jesus Christ. If I am going to redefine him in my image to make him a more palatable, appropriate 21st century kind of savior, then I open the floodgates to very hellish ideas. I don't desire to have an egalitarian relationship with my husband. Let me start at home. Craig and I have been doing this thing together for over for 50 years. I have never once felt that I was subservient to Craig. And that's because, and this goes to the role that men have to play, it's because he has been nothing but my encourager. He's the guy that would sprinkle the fairy dust over me and say, fly. When I was afraid, he'd say, try it. When I needed counsel, he was there for me. When he would say, have you ever thought about it this way? I would do it. So I love serving him. And by that, I don't mean, honey, your dinner's ready and your laundry's folded on the bed. I don't mean that. What I mean is, I love being there for you. So we'll have long discussions, robust discussions, heated discussions, back and forth on a wide variety of subjects. And I always look at him as understanding that he's hearing and he's caring. But 
Here's the model that Craig made years ago, and it's worked beautifully. In our corporation, the partial corporation, there is a president and there is a vice president. We will have board meetings on a regular basis, but if push comes to shove, the president has to make the final decision. Are you willing to accept the role of vice president? I'm an authority. I'm on the board. I said, yes, no problems whatsoever. But because of the way Craig loves me, and by the way, for all the people who hearken back to Ephesians, why do you skip over the part that men have a much more difficult command than we do? They are to love me. Husbands are to love us wives Preach as it, Christ woman. Preach loved it. the church. He died for the church. That's a far more difficult passage to do. But I want to serve Craig in a complementarian fashion because of the way that he loves me. So this goes back to your causal questions when we started our conversation. If men were loving us the way Christ commanded them to, uh, this story would be done. It'd be a two-second wouldn't paragraph. Wouldn't be an issue. That's exactly right. It wouldn't right. be an issue. Exactly right. Yeah, I, I bring this up all the time. I say, just don't even have to memorize the whole passage. Husbands, love your wives as Christ left the church and gave him up for her. Stop. Stop. Full stop. Just think through what that means. That's Cindy, right. I need to put her more important. I cherish and nourish her as Christ of the church. Uh, we would have so few altercations. And, you know, by the way, just for those that don't know, my wife wrote a book years ago called Dancing with the One You Love. And Janet is featured in an interview in there. And she tells the story in some detail about her and Craig. And I was so appreciative, Janet, that you allowed Cindy that interview because, you it's know, th there book. are very powerful, successful, strong women who they're married to a guy, and, and I'm not saying he's effeminate or demure or less than, but maybe he's a, maybe he's a quiet person who is an attorney or a background, an engineer. He's not an out front person, but he's smart enough to know his wife is his life partner. They're one flesh. And if I'm going to nourish and cherish Cindy, God forbid I prevent her from, in her world, becoming a great realtor. Yeah. I'm one of her biggest cheerleaders. You can do this. Of course you can do this. You're smart. And I hear her, I'm sure like Craig hears you, when she talks about a client or a problem, I just shake my head going, A, I could never do this. B, you're brilliant the way you navigate all these different landmines. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, exactly. I appreciate that. Uh, let's go on to cultural topics from tabloids to opinions. And again, you've addressed some of this, but maybe a little more specific. They're pulled into the church, but Janet, they're pulled into Christian colleges and seminaries. Yeah. Somebody I know says this, don't let the world teach you theology all the time. But, you know, what happened in your estimation? And again, you may perhaps have already answered it, but maybe expand on it. Why did churches and more particular Bible colleges and seminaries cave to this issue? Yeah. And I'm saying this issue, it's sort of the feminist issue, mm -hmm. the pro, I mean, it kind of, it gets gummy. A lot of these things are tentacle together. Yes. But they've caved. Yeah. They don't have the courage to say, who was the guy in Chicago that was a Lutheran seminary or a professor who said, we're not a child care center for your kid? I saw, oh <laughs> uh, gosh, you're the one with the mind. You know what I'm talking about? He was at, it was at Chicago and they were talking about the safe spaces and all this nonsense. And he said, we're not a nursery. <laughs> You know, but the evangelical seminaries are all capitulating. Uh, uh. 
It's true. It, but help but, me. So a couple of things. Number one, I'm going to contextualize this. And that is, I don't know when Jesus is going to return. I woke up this morning one day closer than yesterday. Should he tarry tomorrow? I'll be one day closer <laughs> than I was today. So if I'm going to look at that eschatological timeline, I have this roadmap that says, listen, you got to watch the storms. Okay. Got to be a good farmer. Got to be a good sailor. Things are going to get rough. One of the things that's going to happen is we're going to see lawlessness. We're going to look, we're going to hear people who are going to want stuff that tickles their ears. We're not going to love sound doctrine anymore. So I need to recognize that this is a hallmark of the day and age in which we live. Now, does that make me afraid? No, it makes me excited. God in his sovereignty said, Janet, I don't want you in the 1700s when we're rebelling against Mother England, not the 1800s when sin of slavery is splitting a stem to stern. I want you in a post-truth world where good is called evil, evil is called good, and where we are no longer lovers of the word. I would want to live at that time more than any other time. And the reality check is God has called us for such a time as this. So you ask this question about why the acquiescence. I'm repeating myself here, but I really do think it has to do with the centrality of who is Christ in your life. Do you love him more than anything? To quote our dear friend Ann Graham Lotz, is it Christ alone? Is it Jesus in and through me? Is it about my saying, Lord, I woke up this morning and immediately, and here's a word that we haven't talked about so much. Have we submitted? I still think we wrestle with this word. We still think that surrender and submission is tantamount to a white flag. We fail to recognize the really deep meaning of that word, that surrender equals victory. That's a language the world doesn't understand. They don't see the parallel between those two at all. When Christ surrendered in that garden, I love the way Mel Gibson did that scene in The Passion. And you remember this when he's praying and he finishes and he gets up and the serpent slithers its way into the garden and he stands up and his heel comes down and he slams the head of the serpent. When I was at a preview with that, every person, and it was mostly pastors in that room, stood up and cheered because they realized that was the moment of victory. When Jesus said, yes, hell was conquered. And then he fulfilled the act. And I think this is tied into the question of suffering. Those are biggies that we really are avoiding in a sensate world, in a post-truth world. We don't want to tackle the issues that have been asked for the ages. The question of suffering, the question of submission, of whether or not victory and submission can be used in the same sentence. So why do we see this acquiescence? Because I think it's a fear of submission. If I submit totally and completely and immerse myself absolutely without any hesitation into what the word of God has to say, that comes with a cost. I'm going to be marginalized. When I've started, and by the way, there's shadows out there. When you're starting to see people get prosecuted for meeting in church when the state government says you can't, when you see people getting prosecuted because they're not going to acquiesce and give up their First Amendment rights and somehow endorse through their speech, whether it's photography or flowers or cakes, that they're endorsing something that God calls anathema, there is a price to be paid. And I think what's happening is we sheep are looking around and we're going, hmm. Mm -mm -mm. I don't know. That might be a hefty cost. I'm not sure I want to pay that. I know if I plant my feet in both parts of the world and the word, if I acquiesce, if I decide on a Christian campus to have a gay and lesbian club, explain this to me, that somehow I'm going to win friends and influence people. No, what you've done is you've absolutely bought a lie and you've actually told someone that there's a way that seemeth right unto death but you do not understand that you've opened the door to death when you affirm what God says no. So where are we at? This is what I say in the air all the time, and I'm not sure I please people when I say it. I am saying declaratively where I sit right outside of Babylon, that the days of wimpy Christians are over. It's time for us to become muscular off of milk, 
on to meet. We have to get critical in our thinking and biblical in our thinking, and that's not an either-or proposition. It is a both. But, Michael, we are not in the Word. We love the world. We're afraid of reprisals and punishment and marginalization, and the outcome of all of that is— um, I'm going to get real sloppy in my thinking in terms of that primary issue. Listen, if this issue of men and women wasn't important, how come it shows up at the beginning of the book? It's right there at the beginning. It's a plumb line for God's truth. Why does he talk about male and female right out of the gate? Answer, because he knows us. He knows our propensity for rebellion. He knew we would struggle. And so what he wanted to do is the good shepherd to say, let me make this plain and simple and clear for you. What we've done, and you said it beautifully before, was it's either a God of our own creation or it's submission to the God of the universe. It's an either or proposition. You're a strong, smart, outspoken person. What are we missing, Janet? Mm -hmm. Um, Again, some of this you've already touched on, but land a plane for me in the sense as, is it we need to get the pulpits back being more clearly on the roles of men and women? Is it, you know, fill in the blank, help me out here. Uh, how do we get people? And I, I'm a bit of a, no, I am Eeyore. I am half empty. I think it's the sky is falling and we're done as a country. That being said, uh, how do we, how do we stop it from getting worse or do you think there are specific things that will truly make a difference mm. to get people back to a biblical foundation away from the way the culture has infiltrated the church, the seminary, the Bible college? Well, you know, in our conversation, I'm hoping that one of the takeaways of our friends who are listening is that there's a great complexity to this on the one hand, and yet there's a profound simplicity on the other. God is not the author of confusion. What we are talking about our time together today is the reality of cultural confusion caused by walking away from what the Word of God has to say. So I think there has to be a multiphasic response to this. Number one, it sounds so simplistic, but honestly, Michael, I believe to the marrow of my bones there is a winnowing, and there is going to be a separation, and there are going to be those who just absolutely drift away with the culture. And they're going to do it because they want temporal affirmation rather than that eternal confirmation. That well done, thou good and faithful servant, comes at a price. It says, it means you have to say no to the world sometimes because you've said yes to the word. Now, the takeaway on that is that here's what I take comfort in. There will always be a remnant. There were David's men. There were those people who said no. There were the men of Daniel's time who said no. There will always be those who say no. I'm going to adhere to the word of God, unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, pay the cost, whatever it may be. This is why I have so many conversations about the persecuted church. We don't know what persecution is in this country, and yet our brothers and sisters, when they raise their hand and say, yes, Lord, understand it's tantamount to signing their own death sentence. We don't have a point of reference for that yet. Will that day come? Only the Lord knows. But I do think the shadows are beginning to be cast over the Lamb. So I'm taking great comfort in knowing that there will be a remnant. So to those who are the mighty men of God, who will not acquiesce, who will not retreat, I would say stay the course. Hold out the word of light. Hold fast to that which is good. Everything it tells us in the scripture. Be able to tell us without hesitation why the word is applicable today. Uh, You know, there's a myriad of ways. You know this better than I do. And this is why I'm so thankful for your background with DTS, because you really understand all of the application of scripture. I love it when a pastor will say, today we're going to get into the book of Mark and you go line by line, precept by precept. I also love it when a pastor will say, now we're going to take this and we're going to do what I call apply 
applied Christianity. So you're amening it on Sunday. This is why I do this radio program. And Monday comes and you're deer in the headlights. You don't have a clue how to apply what you just heard to the world around you. So maybe we need to better bridge the application of the truths of his word today to what happens on Monday morning when we show up in the world outside of our tent. Number three, and I think we would be remiss if we didn't acknowledge this, there is horrible wounding out there. There has to be some mea culpas. There has to be there some sorries. There has to be, and dear, dear love and respect for our shepherds, we need you desperately. Get some training. When someone says that they're abused, don't start by saying, you have too much sin in your life, you're unconfessed, you haven't been submissive. How about starting out by saying, let's start with the premise that maybe there's some legitimacy here. When the wounds of a narcissist are meted out against a wife, she's not going to come in with a black eye or a bruised nose. That doesn't mean she's not wounded. I have people, when I do programs on narcissism, Michael, Every line is lit. I've been with him 15, 16, 17 years. Why? Because like Damocles' sword over their head hangs this God hates divorce. Okay, then what do you do with the scripture that says flee an angry man like I said before? I constantly go back to the story of Abigail. Okay, you want to talk about that wife and what she had to endure when she had a bad husband? So pastors, how about saying, listen with the ears on your heart. I don't know any woman who wants to come into a pastor study and make up a story about being abused. So start with the situation that there's probably some real hurt there. What do you need to do? If you can't do it, then get some godly resources and organizations that can minister to that woman. So I think what we do is we have to repair the breach by saying, you know what? We didn't preach about this enough. And you know, I know it's gutsy, but maybe we get from the pulpit because we sheep really listen when the shepherd's up there. Maybe there's an entire sermon that's taught on abuse, what it says in scripture, how we handle it, where how we need to be compassionate. That's why I talk about it on the radio. I'm not a pastor, but if I'm going to be conformed and transformed to the image of Christ, I get a lump in my throat every time I read in the New Testament where it says, and Jesus had compassion on them. How do we become more compassionate followers of Christ? That means you start by recognizing that there is wounding out there. So it's not a linear approach. I think it has to be multiphasic and all kinds of work has to be done to repair the breach. But I want to just challenge the shepherds and, you know, who knows how long I'll sit in front of this microphone. Somebody's going to pull my plug someday because they're going to go, that's about enough of that. We've had enough, you know, non-ambiguity. Maybe that's the best way I can put it. But I think as long as we've got the men of God. Give me a call. I know a guy that will employ you. Give me a call. (laughs) (laughs) I thank you for that. Well, Okay. Final thoughts. Is there a bow on this, a salvo on this you'd end the program on? It sounds horribly simplistic to what are painful and very often generational problems of sin in this particular area. But, you know, God didn't make it confusing for us to follow. He knew we were sheep. He knew we were children. He knew we would stumble. Uh, C.S. Lewis said, God wants us to have a child's heart and a grown-up's mind. And I love that phrase because I think what that means is let's just open the word of God and say, okay, Lord, I'm going to lay all my preconceived notions, all my misconceptions, the cacophony of the world. I'm going to push it aside. I'm going to open the word and I'm going to ask you to teach me. I am a woman. What is my relationship with you? What is my relationship to my husband and the church? Teach me, Lord. You know, again, I'm going to go back to my friend, Anne. The whole idea of the person of the Holy Spirit is that we have Jesus in us. So go to him and say, Lord, teach me. And I would say, if men would love their wives the way that scripture teaches them to, 
problem solved. If women would love their husbands the way scripture teaches us to problem solved. I would say to the pastors, just open up your heart and mind. When somebody comes up and they're going to share their testimony on a Sunday morning, they're not the head of the church. You're letting them know that their role is distinctive. Don't get hyper-legalistic and literal at that moment. Let them share their gifts while not mitigating the reality of who's the head of the church, who sits on the board of elders. So honestly, Michael, I have to tell you, it took us a long time to get here. I don't think this is going to be like an ATM machine. It's not going to be an instant response. But I think of godly people, and you are certainly a beautiful example of this. Continue to show us through your teaching, through your role modeling, through your application, how this can be done. It'll be a cultural contagion that will be to our benefit. Jana Partial, you can find her if you just search her name on in the Marketplace of Ideas. She's got a daily program. Is it three hours a day now? Two. Two hours a day. Two hours a day. And plenty of content on there. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Hannah and I, well, it's like, can we get Janet to do this? How about this one? How about this one? So we have to be very careful how, how often we ask for favors. But anyway, God bless you. Give Craig a, a hug from Cindy and me and uh, along to spend some time with you in the not too distant future, if God wills. So. Oh, right back at you, friend. Thank you so much for the privilege. And boy, do I count it as such to be in your company. Thank you, friend. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonamorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.